Welcome to the Early Link Podcast. I'm Rafael Otto. Today I'm speaking with Lamika Castillo, who is based in Los Angeles and is an activist and community organizer who is committed to improving outcomes for underserved communities. Lamika is an adjunct professor at the University of Southern California, Seoul Price School of Public Policy, a diversity, equity, and inclusion consultant, and an organizer with Black Lives Matter Los Angeles. Lamika, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me, Raphael. I wanted to just set the stage a little bit. In the past month, we've seen worldwide protests in response to the death of George Floyd and growing momentum around the Black Lives Matter movement. Los Angeles has had record-breaking attendance at protests. What is the environment like right now in Los Angeles, and what do your organizing efforts look like? That's a great question. So uh, what is today? June 26th. So things have calmed down a bit since uh, three or four weeks ago after George Floyd was um, first murdered and protests, you know, emerged around the country and then also internationally. Um, Here in Los Angeles, as you mentioned, Rafael, we've had quite a few participants in attendance. Um, Many community members from all over Los Angeles and beyond have shown up in the streets We've had upwards of tens of thousands of people all across L.A. County from downtown L.A. in front of City Hall and in front of the district attorney, Jackie Lacey's office, to Hollywood and also in Torrance for people who are familiar with the L.A. area, Long Beach and just, again, all across L.A. County. People are in the streets because everybody wants justice. And I think a lot of the focus has been around George Floyd. And, of course, George Floyd's murder has really resonated with a lot of people who, you know, saw the video of his life being taken away from him at the hands of police. I -hmm. think what's important for people to know is that uh, George Floyd is one of many individuals who have been murdered through state sanctioned violence in this country. And here in Los Angeles, we actually have one of the largest numbers of people who've been killed by police with no prosecutions. Um, And so in the organizing we've done here and with Black Lives Matter in LA, we know that Over the past seven years since our district attorney, Jackie Lacey, has been in office, we've had over 600 people killed by police and none of those police officers have been convicted. So it's a huge issue here for us here in Los Angeles. And I think people are recognizing that what happened to George Floyd in Minnesota is not at all different from what we have happening here regularly in our own community and that it's important for people to stand up and Um, take action to make sure that these injustices don't continue to plague everyone, but especially Black folks here in L.A. Do you feel like there is a, I mean, I know the George Floyd incident elevated what's happening in terms of police brutality to, I think, more people. Do you feel like there's a growing understanding of the issues alongside that? I do think that there's a growing understanding of the issues alongside, you know, his death. I think people recognize that that there's a a real issue with racism in America, that there's a real issue with anti-Blackness in America, that Black folks are disproportionately represented in the the policing system and incarceration across the country, and unfortunately are experiencing state-sanctioned violence at disproportionate rates. What do I mean by that? Uh, That means that when you look at the numbers of folks who have been killed by law enforcement across the U.S., Black people are disproportionately represented. Um, Some data came out here in Los Angeles recently that looked at the number of people who've been killed across LA County from 2000 until 2020. um, And the number 
was pretty significantly high. I think it was almost a thousand people, around 900 and some odd people. And something like 98% of those folks were men, men of color and in particular black men. And so I think that people are starting to see that this is an issue that, again, has to be addressed, um, that for some people who have thought that racism, you know, is a thing of the past, they're realizing and recognizing that it actually isn't a thing of the past, that it's being perpetuated in the systems that exist across this country, um, and that police are playing a significant role in uh, maintaining these racist practices and that we have to do something about it. Of course, for us with Black Lives Matter, one of the main calls that we are putting out is that we need to defund the police, that um, police in in America are receiving um, exorbitant amounts of resources from local government. Our taxpayer dollars are going to pay for police to police our communities because of concerns for safety. But we know that what is needed is actually resources to be you know, invested in the community so that we can prevent concerns for safety. Um, and so that's been wh- one of the, the messages I think that's rang loud and clear for folks. And we're seeing responses to that around the country where people are rallying around this idea that we need to defund the police in order to have additional resources for communities so that we can invest in housing and education and food and, you know, things that pr- actually help us to create safe communities where people are thriving and not feeling a need to um, respond, you know, in ways that might um, make communities feel less safe. I think that is in the conversations around defunding and abolishing the police, I think that is an important distinction. And it's also like there's at times a source of misunderstanding about what that means. So in part, it's uh, if we defund the police in some ways, we can move those resources to where they're really needed in the community to, as you say, create better opportunities for our children and members of society broadly. But What would you want to clarify in terms of the message around defunding or abolishing the police? Well, I think what's important for people to know is that Black Lives Matter actually is an abolitionist organization. So the goal is to ultimately get to a place where communities are able to thrive without policing, right? So we want to reimagine safety. What does it look like to actually create a, a safe community? I live in a community, I literally live across the street from a police station. Uh, The police station moved in after I moved in. I don't feel safer in my community because there are police present. In fact, I feel less safe in my community when police are present. I feel uncomfortable around police because of my own background and experiences with police departments um, and police officers themselves. And so for me, and also for the message that Black Lives Matter is putting out around defunding the police, The goal is actually ultimately to get to a place where we don't need police. Um, What reimagined safety looks like is a a space in which police are not necessary to mitigate um, issues of of concern within the community because the community can do those things for itself. There are so many compounded pressures at the moment. And one of them that is happening alongside this moment in history is the global pandemic with COVID-19, which is also unprecedented and is also disproportionately impacting communities of color. Talk a little bit about that. And I know you've talked about the fact that um, systemic racial oppression is not something that is new, but talk about that in the context of this of the global pandemic with COVID. No, absolutely. I think what's really important for people to recognize is that COVID did not create health inequities or disparities within communities what it has done is illuminated these issues for communities of color and especially for black communities. What we know is that black folks in particular and also indigenous 
folks too are disproportionately impacted by health issues such as diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, and and others, asthma, right? Name a, a health issue, a disparity in the healthcare system. And what you'll see is that the communities of colors are the ones who are disproportionately impacted. Um, a lot of times people like to attribute this to individual decisions, right? Perhaps if mm-hmm. a person didn't eat fast food as much, or if they exercise more, what folks don't often realize is that these disproportionate impacts on health of communities of color are also rooted in systemic racism. For example, I grew up in South Los Angeles. South Los Angeles is a community that has very few grocery stores per, you know, given like when you look at the the residents in the community per capita, how many grocery stores are there per uh, for the number of residents? When you compare that to an area like West Los Angeles, um, and I've actually done the research on this. So I was a graduate research assistant when I was in grad school and uh, spent a lot of time actually looking at this particular issue. And what we found was that there are, are a lot more healthy options in what more white and affluent communities than there are in communities of color and communities where there are black and brown folks. And those that fact is one of the contributing factors to the um, disparities in health care that folks are facing in communities of color. So when we look at COVID and how COVID has illuminated this, we're seeing that people of color are dying at, at higher rates, um, which means that children are being impacted by you know, parents and grandparents who are being lost to a, a potentially preventable um, illness because now it's been exacerbated by, by COVID. And I think that it's important for people to understand, again, that this is an issue that is not just at the individual level, but that systemic racism and racist practices, even in hospitals, and how, you know, the perceptions that practitioners have around Black people and other people of color, that those are exacerbating the challenges that we're seeing with COVID across the country. How would you describe the impact of, I mean, it's current events, but it's I hesitate to even say the word current because what we're really talking about is the same concept of systemic racial oppression and the impact on children and on young children in particular. Yeah. So I think like, where do we even start with that? Right. Um, The unfortunate reality is that, again, because of systemic racism and honestly, white supremacy in our country, children of color in particular are disproportionately impacted by things such as um, you know, race, racism and policing, racism in our healthcare system, racism in our education system. And so many people don't realize that racism is so baked into these systems that it's sometimes difficult for some to see, whereas the rest of us who are experiencing it know that it's there and are constantly fighting against it while just trying to live and thrive, right? And so right. when I think about um, children and especially early childhood education and how racism and anti-Blackness in particular shows up, I think about the ways in which children, Black children, are policed in our education system. Just a few years ago, the U.S. Department of Education came out with a report, and I'm sure your listeners are familiar with this because of the focus that you all have on early childhood education, um, but I just want to kind of re, um, you know, put out some of the data that that report showed. So yeah, while, yeah, please do. Yeah, so while Black students represent 19% of children in preschool, of children who are suspended in preschool are black children, right? Mm -hmm. So we're seeing a huge uh, gap, a huge disparity here where black children are, you know, a little less than a fifth of the population of students in preschools, but represent almost 
50% of those children who are suspended. And we know that children who are suspended, um, especially in early childhood education, often end up on a trajectory to in the school to prison pipeline, right? That they are suspended in preschool and you start to see similar types of patterns as they progress in their education, not because they're somehow bad students or they're worse um, or bad children compared to their peers and classmates, but because their behaviors are seen as deviant from compare as compared to other students, even if it's the same behaviors as say their white peers. And I think it's also important to note that Black children in K through 12 education are 3.8 times more likely to be suspended than white children, right? So right. black children are consistently being criminalized and demonized um, in their education system from an early age, as early as, as preschool. And we have to ask why, right? It, either we believe that black children, again, are somehow deviant or more problematic and have behavioral issues compared to other children, or there's some kind of racial and anti-black activities that are taking place that are resulting or mindsets that, that people have that are resulting in this type of, um, you know, treatment of children. When you talk about it in those ways, what it does is it really depicts this system that begins really in early childhood. And I know that's our focus as, as Children's Institute and as an advocacy organization. And you look at what's happening in terms of the bias against young black boys. And some of the research indicates that it really, it is black children, but in particular black boys who are susceptible to expulsion and suspension. Um, but then when you look at that progression into K-12, you look at the issue of policing in schools, you look at the issues of school-to-prison pipeline, you see very clearly an oppressive anti-Black system that begins when children are very young. No, absolutely. And, and I would even, I have an eight-month-old son, and so I would even argue that uh, demonization starts earlier, unfortunately. And to your point, Raphael, about you know, this connection between the suspension and expulsions and policing in schools. Here in LA, we know that Black students represent 8% of the student population, yet they are 25% of the students who come in contact with LA school police department, right? And so one in four arrests in LA happen at the elementary school age, and the majority of those are Black children, again, right? So think about that. Black students represent 25% of the students who have come in contact with LA school police. And this is from a study by Million Dollar Hoods at UCLA. Right. And then one in four arrests of all arrests within LA Los Angeles Unified School District, one in four of those arrests are at the the elementary and middle school ages, right? So that's, we're talking about five years old to 12 or 13 years old, right? It is incredible. And it's very concerning that that's happening. Uh, As a new mother, how do you think about, or what do you think about when you look ahead to raising your child in the America we have in front of us right now in 2020 with everything that's happening? You know, that's a really great question and a tough one to answer because I think if you had asked me this before George Floyd's death, before there were, you know, there was a global uprising against racism and anti-Blackness, I, my response probably would have been different. I mean, to be perfectly honest with you, Raphael, I waited a long time to have children because of my fear and concern about what it meant to actually have a black child, give birth to a child and have a black child in this world, given the racism and anti-blackness, given the experiences that I personally have had and my husband has had and our family members have had with police and given the experiences that I see um, and have had myself going through our K through 12 education system, experiencing racism in college, experiencing 
um, you know, disproportionate um, outcomes for black folks in workplaces. And so I think it's a scary thing. It has been a scary thing for me to think about raising a child in this country, given the level of racism and anti-blackness that exists. And I've been very honest and transparent with those I love and my friends and family members about that fear. Right. Since this uprising has taken place, I think I have felt more hopeful and I felt an even greater need and urge to fight to change the systems because I don't want my son to experience the types of racism and anti-blackness that I've experienced. I don't ever want him to know what it means that someone's name has become a hashtag because they were killed by police. I don't want him to ever know what racial profiling is. I don't want him to um, know what it feels like to have police walking around on your campus with weapons and criminalizing children and especially black children. And he is a black boy. And so that, you know, again, the data speaks for itself. He is more likely to experience racial profiling in school and outside of school currently. But that's why I do the work that I do. Um, you know, one of the things that we've been advocating for, again, is defunding the police. Mm-hmm. And toward the concept of abolition, one of the ways that we can actually start that process is to say, we don't need police in our schools. Our children are not criminals. They're scholars. The school is supposed to be a safe space for them to learn and to grow. And if they are not seen as scholars who need to be invested in and they're seen as criminals, then they will be treated like criminals, right? And so I'm hopeful that with some of the progress that we're seeing with uh, just earlier this week, you know, Oakland Unified School District decided that they would uh, cancel their relationship and dissolve the police department. San Francisco Unified School District in Minnesota, the same thing in North Carolina. Yes. Right. Um, several places across the country. And I've literally cried tears of joy because I'm thinking, you know, I've been advocating for the same thing here in Los Angeles. It hasn't happened yet, but I'm hopeful that it will happen and that that is a big step toward racial equity and justice where I hope and pray he never knows what it feels like to have to go to school or walk around in the community and fear for his safety because the people who are supposed to protect and serve him are the very people who are harming his community and potentially himself. I thank you for sharing that. Um, There are a couple questions that come to mind when you talk about that. And I guess one of them is, it seems like we have a real opportunity when we think about the education of children to teach a history and an awareness of the world that also includes a dismantling of racism. That can happen at the same time. And then this idea of racism is a a construct that is learned. Um, And at the same time, there's a challenge because our children are participating in a system that is notoriously racist. So I'm just curious about your thoughts on that and what might that look like? And do you see that as an opportunity for us? Oh, I I absolutely see it as an opportunity for us. I think that in order for us to be able to dismantle the systems of racism, white supremacy and anti-blackness in this country, we need to think about what it looks like to begin that process with educating our children. Um, I've already seen a lot of young people who have a different mindset than like my generation, than older generations of folks who did not have um, exposure or access to information about you know, the real history of this country because who writes our history, right? What What's right. included in history books. Um, mm-hmm. I've had friends who've reached out to me who have children, young children, and are interested in finding, inform- like, how you know, where do I find books on anti-racism for my child who is even, you know, 
in the early stages, Justice, my baby's name is Justice. Justice is eight months old and we read him books every day. And we are very intentional about making sure he has a variety of stories from, from people from different backgrounds and perspectives, but then also that we are exposing him to different narratives about different experiences in this country and in this world. And I think that that's so important for parents to begin that process, recognizing that we have a role to play in, you know, from the day the day a child is born to really shape the way that they look at the world and raise them as anti-racist and not um, allow them to walk around in the world and just absorb what's going on, but to actually be able to contribute and question and be critical thinkers and consumers of the information around them and to push their thinking from a young age. I wanted to ask you about, uh, as a second part to what you were commenting on before, is this connection to what's happening with the protests around the country and around the world to real changes and shifts in policy. Can we keep the momentum going? Or what does it look like to keep the momentum going and to continue to put the pressure on so that policy does reflect where the movement is trying to go? Yeah, that's a good question and a tough one, right? Because I do believe that we can keep the momentum going. I think it's great when people show up and show out in the streets and are present, physically putting themselves on the line and saying, I'm here, you know, I'm fighting and I'm standing in solidarity with the folks who are the most oppressed at the, you know, right now. But the, the struggle has to continue, not just in the streets, but in a lot of different ways. So in my role with Black Lives Matter as an organizer, I'm also a member of our policy team. And so I actually work on policy quite a bit. And I think it's important for individuals who are interested in continuing to do this work to get involved with organizations like Black Lives Matter or, or some of the allied organizations that do this work, like Surge, uh, White People for Black Lives, um, Asians for Black Lives. There's a, a group of folks who are um, in the in the Latinx community, the Latino community, which I am also, I am Afro-Latina, so I also identify with the Latino community um, mm -hmm. through Mi Gente, which is a communications platform. They've been advocating for Spanish media to put out more information about Black Lives Matter and to give a, a more comprehensive explanation of what's happening and helping Spanish speakers to understand why Black Lives Matter is exists and what the issues are surrounding um, the death of George Floyd that have caused this global uprising. And so I think when people, again, want to continue with the momentum, it's important to get involved in organizations like this, get involved in your, um, you know, in the, the local elections in your community. One of the things that I've seen is here in, at, in Los Angeles with LAUSD, LAUSD is the, you know, the, the school district has decided just a few days ago that they would not defund the police which is very unfortunate. When I look at who's on the school board, I see that the school board does not represent the diversity of folks in Los Angeles. And I think that that plays a huge role in why the police uh, were not defunded in LAUSD compared to other school districts. When we look at the school boards and see who's in positions to make those decisions. Right. Uh, similarly in LA and across the country, actually, but here in Los Angeles, I can speak to the work we've done to address some of the the injustices that we see with police not being held accountable for abuse of power and also specifically for killing people, killing citizens that they're supposed to protect and serve. And a lot of that lack of accountability comes from the district attorney's office. And uh, our district attorney, Jackie Lacey, has been in office for seven years and has not prosecuted for the 600 plus 
people who've been killed since she's been in office, there hasn't been a prosecution. And so um, we have been advocating to for her to do her job. So prosecute the cops who killed people or mm -hmm. or that she needs to be, um, you know, put out of office. And so we've been asking people and encouraging people to to basically elect somebody different. We if a person is in an elected position and they're not um, responding to the cries of the people and the needs of the community and the families who've lost loved ones, then we need to put somebody else in office who is going to hold these, you know, these officers accountable for the crimes that they've committed against the citizens. And so I think that those are some ways for folks to, to keep the momentum going um, and just know that, again, being in the streets is great, but it's not the end of the story. We need people to actually take action uh, for long-term systemic change. And take action in a variety of ways. I mean, there are, there are things that we can do as individuals. We can uh, work together with groups. We can get involved with policy. We can get in, involved with politics. <laughs> mm -hmm. Lots of things people can do. Absolutely. You know, one thing I want to mention, Raphael, because we are still in the midst of a, a global pandemic as well. I know for some folks, and myself included, right, I'm very active and uh, I do a lot for Black Lives Matter here in LA, but I also have an eight month old son and I am socially distancing. I continue to distance and make sure that I'm not exposing myself to the virus. And what that means is I'm making a lot of phone calls, right, to my elected officials. I'm also participating in Zoom meetings for police commission meetings and city council hearings. You know, I am um, spreading the word via social media. So I know for some individuals, it's challenging right now to figure out how to stay involved if you are, you know, immunocompromised or just want to continue to practice distancing, given the fact that we're in the midst of a pandemic. And I think that there are so many ways for you to do that and just, you know, to stay connected to these organizations uh, like Black Lives Matter and find out what are some of the ways that you can be involved and continue to uh, build that, keep that momentum, even if you can't be out in the streets or showing up to things in person right now. I appreciate that. And I want to ask you too, I know that there's kind of a phenomenon of organizations and companies making public statements around their commitment to racial justice, uh, around their work with DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, I'm just curious if you're, you know, from an organizational standpoint, what do you feel like it takes for an organization to really do that well and commit to that work well? And is there an example that might come to mind? Yeah, that's a really great question. And um, one that I've been grappling with quite a bit recently in my work as a diversity, equity, and inclusion consultant. I think it's really important that organizations uh, put out statements to say that they stand in solidarity, you know, with Black Lives Matter and that they are committed to change. But those statements ring empty if you don't have any actions associated with them. Um, and so it is so important for organizations to not put out a statement and then just end with that statement, but to take real meaningful steps. What does that look like? I think it looks like really evaluating the internal policies, practices, and procedures within your organization. A lot of times organizations are not aware of the fact that they have biases built into their employee handbooks, the way that they um, make hiring decisions, where they're sourcing for talent, where they're recruiting talent, the way that they're evaluating their team members. Their bias is baked into a lot of different places within organizations. And um, myself and my partner, Maya, Dr. Maya Bug, um, who do this work together, we we help companies identify those. We go and we evaluate those organizations and we take a look at all of their different, again, policies and practices. And we say, this is where we're seeing some issues here. There's bias here. I think it's really helpful actually to hire 
consultants and I'm not, this is not just a plug for myself. Actually, I, you can hire sure. whoever you want, <laughs> but it is important to have a, um, an external party who can have, you know, an objective perspective of the organization, go in and collect data, right? Survey your team to see what people's experiences are, conduct interviews and focus groups to learn more about where people are experiencing sometimes racism. I mean, again, a lot of organizations don't think that they're doing anything in particular that is perpetuating racist practices or furthering anti-blackness in their companies. One of my friends uh, made a statement recently. She said, hey, if you you're you're thinking, yeah, my organization does this. You have to look at yourself and see where you are helping to perpetuate these types of problems, because it's not just like, you know, the organization, the institution itself that's problematic. It's the people within the institution that are perpetuating these biases through their their day-to-day practices. And so it really takes right. some introspective on the part of the leaders, on the part of other team members, and then to do that work to actually dismantle racism within your institution because institutionalized racism is one of the, the foundations of systemic racism. And in order to address the, the systemic racism that we see in this country, we really have to tackle it at a lot of different levels and institutions are one of them. Uh, thank you for that. I have one more question for you and that's, I'm just curious about your thoughts around the language. Often when we talk about countering systemic racism or racially oppressive systems, some of the language is, is around undoing racism, dismantling racism, being an anti-racist. And I'm curious about what that looks like on the other side of it. So on one hand, we're, we, if we choose to dismantle, at the same time, we're also moving to create something else. And I know you've touched on that a little bit, but I am curious about your forward-looking thoughts on what some of the results would look like. What does an anti-racist society look like? Yeah, that's actually, again, you have a lot of good questions, Raphael. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) That's a really great question. And I think um, you're right. When we say we want to dismantle racism, we want to reimagine public safety, um, we want to abolish these systems. It does mean that we have to think about what is what does the opposite of that look like or what is going to be the better system um, or stronger system. I think for me, when I think about um, a society in which racism is not present, it means for me that I can walk around, around freely and not be fearful or have any concern that someone looks at me and or my son. I'll use my son as an example. I want a world in which my eight month old literally never has a feeling of someone being afraid of him because he's a, he's black and he's a boy. He's black and he's a man when he gets older. Right. I want my son to be able to see differences to see. I I don't want to be colorblind. I want him to be able to see all of the different colors and appreciate everybody and what they have to offer and and celebrate those differences um, that exist. And I want his differences to be celebrated as well. I think that a world free of racism means that I have the same prospects of being promoted to a CEO as anybody else in an organization. And my hair as a black woman who has naturally curly hair is not a factor that's considered in that selection process or that promotion process, uh, which we know is one of the ways that racism shows up in institutions and systems. And I think I, I really, I feel like if I could draw, I'm not an artist, but if I could paint or draw what a racist free world looks like, it would literally feel like a paradise to me, like being on a beach somewhere with the sun shining and the wind blowing and the freedom that you feel when you're in that space and the joy you feel when you're in that space. I would just feel that all the time and experience that all the time and not know what it feels like 
otherwise. That uh, is a wonderful image to leave us with, Lamika. So thank you. I, I appreciate you coming on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. Um, this has been a really interesting and good conversation and it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Damn, feeling like the man of the hour, but no one man should have all that power. Now we're getting somewhere till we get stopped, get popped, pumping some gas up at the pit stop. something Damn. we can do or are we running out of time? Are we victims of ourselves or did somebody cross the line? Cloudy. This is the Early Link Podcast brought to you by Children's Institute. Children's Institute is working to ensure that every child in Oregon has the best start in life. I'm your host, Rafael Otto. Join us and tune in on 99.1 FM on the second and fourth Sunday of every month at 4.30 p.m. If you don't catch us on the air, you can always find episodes on the Children's Institute website at childinst.org and on the Portland Radio Project website at prp.fm. The Early Link Podcast is also available on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.